0: The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman and I'm joined here Today in Hong Kong by Senior Vice President of RFI Asia, David Ko. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, good. It's good to be here in your office in Wong Chuk Hang, part part of Hong Kong I haven't been to in a long time, but where I grew up, weirdly enough. Uh, And very surprising to see that there's a Starbucks and a Pizza Express here.
1: I'm sure it brings back a lot of memories. Well, for no, because none of this stuff was here <laughs> when I well, grew up here. When we first moved here, there there were no Starbucks and yeah. and, and Pizza Expresses either. So, it's crazy. Uh, it was before the subway even started. So, yeah,
0: of course. Yeah, MTR.
1: Anyway, we're
0: going to talk about fake news, I guess, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. a a popular topic. Um, but specifically, I think around um, some of the more recent trends in terms of what we're seeing. Uh, in terms of uh, deep fake content, for example, um, and what it means for social media networks uh, and perhaps what it means for marketers as well. Um, now. You were just in a discussion on this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Singapore, is that correct? Uh, it was actually in Hong Kong. Oh, it was at in Hong Kong. CSR right. Summit. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was with some of the social media platforms.
1: Absolutely. So I moderated a panel mm-hmm. uh, where we had uh, guests from both Facebook and Google. Right. So from, uh, from Facebook we had Claire Divi, um mm-hmm. who had some public policy for Asia and her counterpart uh, at Google was uh, Jake Lucci. Mm-hmm. So they were both on the panel, and we had a very far reaching discussion about the balance of personal responsibility versus the platform's responsibility mm. uh, when it comes to policing, fake news, um, fraudulent content, and so on. Yeah. So it was very interesting. Um, And we had uh, obviously a full house because this is a very hot topic right now. Yeah. And lots of questions from the audience. Um, We also had an academic um, on the panel, so it was a a lecturer from Hong Kong University. So it was a really good mix of just representatives from different sectors. Um, I I think obviously um, Facebook or Google, you know, the platforms will say that it's it's not just their responsibility, you know, mm-hmm. the, the public or the consumer of information. We have a role to play as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came out of that was just this the fact that not a lot of people know that you can easily flag any piece of content on Facebook mm-hmm. that you think is suspicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Facebook to actually go in and check, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know that you can report anything. So in a sense, you know, people also have to just take it on and not just say, Facebook or whatever social media platform, you do the hard work for me, you do the filtering, you you only show me what is correct because that is a very, very gray area. It's a vast gray area of what exactly is content that is appropriate and content that's not. Mm.
0: But then don't you end up in a situation where perhaps you have people um, reporting information simply because they don't like it? or it doesn't agree with their views even if it is accurate, for example. I mean, can, we, can you necessarily trust mm. people mm. to verify whether something is real or fake?
1: Yeah, that's why I think it's a two-step process. So it's people reporting or flagging content to be reviewed, mm-hmm. but obviously they're not going to be the arbiter of what finally is, is determined to be, whether it's fake or actually authentic content, right? So yeah. but at least by flagging something, you're you're using the collective power of the crowd to at least give Facebook statistical data on which to base, you know, whether something is serious enough to be looked at, mm-hmm. with, with you know, with the resources. Um, yeah, okay. I, I think the world has kind of changed. Uh, so if I would go back five years to ten years ago, I think fake news or clickbait, which was more something that people were concerned about at that time. Um, was an offshoot of just the nature of the platform itself because we're all competing for eyeballs. So a lot of media, publishers, they're looking for ways to um, basically increase their, their their ways to make revenue from eyeballs, right? So it's all about getting more attention, more sensational headlines. We didn't really cross over into creating fake news or fake content uh, with the intent of Actually, creating or achieving a certain end, right? Whereas I think in recent years, with a lot of that has happened in the West, whether it's you know uh, elections or referendums, there's there an active effort um, on the part of bad actors to mm-hmm. to actively create fake news to influence results. And I think that's where the vigilance comes in, because when you're when clickbait is your problem. It's not that serious. I mean, you you can pretty much fight clickbait very easily. And I think Facebook did their part to change their algorithms a few years ago to actually filter out or deprioritize clickbait mm-hmm. content, right? But when you're talking about organized groups that actually, you know, create content to mobilize and deceive and you know cause people to believe um, really outlandish things. Um, and actually cause harm, as in physical harm. I think that becomes a whole new different ballgame, and you actually need to almost overcompensate in how you fight that. I mean, if you remember the election, um, remember that that case where there was a pizza restaurant, and there was this rumor that Hillary was running the pedophile ring. The the pedophile ring. Um, I mean, a a sensible person would not believe that, right? Mm. And you would think that that would not go very far. And Mm. I think because most people didn't consider that serious news at all. I don't think the mainstream news media even picked up on that. And so Mm -hmm. there was no active uh, reason to fight it until something happened, right? And the shooting happened. And I think it was a wake up call for a lot of people where they realized, oh, there are actually people out there that are affected by this. Mm -hmm. And it's it's now getting to the point where you have to actively or take active measures to counter this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I personally believe that the platforms have a responsibility to devote resources to proactively come out and say, you know, this piece of news is fake or be aware of this publisher um, and, you know, we don't carry content from this particular publisher, for -hmm. example. Um, So I was talking to my colleague today from China and we manage a lot of WeChat accounts for our clients. Yeah. WeChat actually has an active WeChat account. that actively debunks fake news. Right. So, And they maintain this, and they have staff behind it, and they actually go out and actively research content on their platform, Mm. and they'll say, you know, uh, this rumor that's going around about, you know, so-and-so having a scandal with whomever is not true and has Mm -hmm. been actively debunked. And um, it's kind of like the Snopes, right? So I think we need more like that. Mm -hmm. Um, from the likes of Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms because um, I think extraordinary actions Mm -hmm. demand extraordinary measures. Do you think the social networks are doing enough
0: or or do you worry perhaps that they're trying to place too much responsibility on the user?
1: I think they need to do more. Um, I wouldn't say that they're expecting the users to, to to do everything or be accountable for, for their own you know, content that they consume, but I, I would love to see Facebook do what WeChat is doing, do mm. what Tencent is doing, which is to have an active role in debunking fake news, um, fraudulent news, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, because, frankly, the, the, the purveyors of fake news, the creators of deepfakes and so on, they're, they're getting very good. Mm. And when they, it's not just about clickbait headlines, but actually trying to achieve, say, political ends. That means they they have a they have very um, real world benefits from being from being successful, right? So mm. they have it's it's a war basically. I think, mm. and we need soldiers wow. on our side yeah. when they've got soldiers already on their side or yeah. spies or whatever you choose to call them.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned deep fake content. I wonder if you could perhaps talk us. Through that a little bit because it's, it seems like deepfake content is becoming quite sophisticated mm. um, in its ability to deceive people,
1: mm. especially videos now. Mm. So I don't know if you've seen the Jordan Peele deepfake video of Obama.
0: Yeah, that one I've seen. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: I think that's a great example of of mm. something that's so. So I show that to a lot of clients, and I think for a lot of them it's a wake-up call. I mean, it always gets a laugh at the end when it's it's revealed that it's actually not Obama himself, but behind the the humor is a very sobering message, which is you can no longer believe what you see. You know, it used to be don't believe everything you read Mm -hmm. or don't believe everything you hear. And now, with the advent of of AI, or more accurately, machine learning, it's getting to the point where you cannot even believe what you see. Um, And, of course, with still photography, that's been the case for many years, right? Because photographs are very easily doctored. But we're now entering the age where videos are very easily doctored. Mm -hmm. So there's really no, no final frontier. I think we've reached it. Unless, you know, when we get to a situation where VR becomes very common and you have fake VR content, Mm -hmm. then maybe that's the final frontier. But um, we're entering an age where it's very dangerous Mm. and especially when we're living in a digital age, Right? everyone practically lives on the internet now and we have this quick twitch response to what we see on the internet. Mm. Um, So you don't always have the luxury of time to debunk something you see. And if, you, if deep fake content is produced in such a way that causes a visceral reaction, uh, whether it's outrage, anger, disgust, um, and that can easily lead to a snowball effect of actions and consequences, mm-hmm. um, and oftentimes it, it's, you're not going to have time to correct it. Mm-hmm. And frankly also in this age where w- there's so much going on and there's so much information by the time you realize there's a problem, it, people have already moved on, mm. right? And so the, the impact can be lasting. Mm-hmm.
0: What kind of risks does it pose f- for your clients? You said you show them the, the deep fake videos. I don't know if any of them have actually faced any, any real world problems yet. But if not, what, what worries them, I guess, and what worries you uh, in terms of the threats to your clients?
1: I think it's being in, in the area that I am. I think it is reputational risk, mm-hmm. reputational impact. Um, we work with a lot of um, companies that are in the public interest. Um, you know, we work with mass transit companies. Mm-hmm. We work with F and B conglomerates. Um, you know, we work with a company that owns a majority of many restaurants here in Hong Kong, for example. So, mm-hmm. one simple deepfake video about food contamination, um, food safety, uh, employee you know, behavior could have a very lasting impact on the reputation of the company. So they are very worried about um, people with malicious intent creating content designed to hurt them. Hmm. And the way that the human brain works, of course, even if you later debunk the, 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 the fake information, the impression is there. Mm. right, so the damage may already be d- be done. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of clients are wondering, ca- how do we actively police against it? Mm. How do we detect um, this sort of surge of negative sentiment as early as we can? Yeah, and, and I think that's something that many marketers are working on.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no tech solution for it, is there?
1: There can be, right. there can be. Um, so we work in a space that relies a lot on social listening and sentiment detection so we're we're in this process of getting sentiment detection as accurate as possible and as early as possible so you know imagine if we're constantly monitoring the the internet for all the conversations about a, a particular brand and we know right down to the minute what the sentiment level is about that brand. Mm. So if you see a spike in negative sentiment for example, you can detect that right down to perhaps, you know, minutes mm-hmm. or at the very most hours. So you can always see when there's, there's there's an uptick in negative sentiment, you know that something's going on and we can employ software to monitor these multiple spikes every day mm-hmm. and actively, you know, go out and debunk Uh, If it is negative spikes in sentiment due to fake news or something fraudulent, um, we can then go out and actively debunk it with accurate information Mm. uh, or real news. And that's something that we're constantly working towards.
0: Yeah. Okay. In terms of the Chinese social media platforms, you mentioned um, WeChat, Tencent previously. I mean, do they have the same fake news problems
1: that the likes of Facebook and Twitter do? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, China—it's—it's uh, it's a very interesting dichotomy in mm-hmm. China, where uh, obviously you have um, a lot of censorship, mm. uh, especially of topics that are that the government deems unfriendly or mm-hmm. unacceptable. But outside of that, it's pretty freewheeling. Mm-hmm. So you're in—you're uh, in a country where you've got, you know, one billion. Monthly active users on WeChat, for example, mm. that's a lot of. Uh, that's a very fertile field for a lot of misinformation to spread, mm-hmm. and it has. And that's actually the impetus for WeChat to take active measures to come out and say, you know, we have this WeChat account. Come, come, subscribe to this, and we will do our best to inform you of what's, what's fake out there. Mm. And um, I was watching this video by produced by the New York Times, and they were talking about. Fake news mm. and fakes. and, and um, in certain countries that are uh, very frequent targets of misinformation campaigns, like the Ukraine, they even have a TV show, a nightly TV show that debunks uh, fake news that you see on internet. Mm. So it's gone to the point where you have a prime time show that that tries to fight this. So you can see that it's it's a very real war now, um, and I'm actually very pleased that, you know, in a country like China, WeChat's taking active steps to to counter this. Sure. Um, but of course, you know, the, the, the internet users themselves, the WeChat users, they also need to be very vigilant mm-hmm. as well. Do you see a risk of
0: companies themselves turning into bad actors here and maybe using the latitude that is on offer to perhaps try to disseminate Information about themselves, which isn't necessarily uh, genuine
1: hmm I would never say that no company would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we always take pains to advise our clients never mm-hmm. to do that because authenticity is a very expensive currency mm-hmm. that you can lose very quickly yeah um, and you know this. You know it takes years to build trust. Mm-hmm. It takes years to to um, to prove that you're authentic as a brand, and it can literally be destroyed with one tweet, right? Mm. So it's it's it, it, the downside is too too much for brands to to take the risk. Mm. Um, and frankly, if if a client insisted on doing that, we would probably just not work with them. Mm. Um, now, where it becomes a little bit gray is. Uh, remember what people used to say spinning, you mm-hmm. know, putting a different spin on things. Um, that's where it can become, because my truth might not be the same as your truth. So if a company believes or a brand believes that they are, their perception of the truth is the truth <laughs> um, and they go out and they actively uh, put that out into the world. Are they are they being disingen- disingenuous? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, but I always counsel clients. You know, if if in doubt, always always strive for being authentic. Always strive for being transparent mm-hmm. as much as you can. Yeah. Uh, because it's really not worth it to to squander that currency.
0: Mm. What about the risks? I mean, I guess in China specifically, because um, and you know China's not the only country in the world where this happens. But in this region, I think it's probably where it's most, most popular, where you see this phenomenon, sometimes termed black PR. You know, sometimes you have companies actually attacking or going after other companies within their own industry or sector. Hmm. Um, and I think we have seen that in certain sectors. Hmm. Um, uh, and, and it would seem to me that the possibilities offered by deep fake content and fake news are quite attractive perhaps to less scrupulous operators. That's um, true. I mean, how, how, can, how can you defend against that?
1: That's a hard one. I can still remember when Weibo and WeChat first started becoming popular, there, were, there, 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 there rose up this uh, cottage industry of companies that you could just hire, we call them da shou, mm-hmm. you've heard this, right? Yep. You could hire people to go out there and actively def, <laughs> defame your competitors and um, mm-hmm. spread, spread rumors and negative news. Um, and it was always this, you know, this shady underbelly of the China internet. Um, sure. Those companies still exist, those agencies still exist. Yeah. Um, I- if anything, they're probably, there's probably more of them now. Um, I, I don't know that that's ever going to disappear, because whenever there's profit to be made, there will be people willing to do the, the criminal thing, right, or just perhaps just unethical. Yeah. So it's it, it's a constant fight, um, but what was also very interesting at the time was in addition to the dasho agencies, you could also hire... Other agencies that could go out and actually delete. It's the same agencies, the neg- <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it could be the same agencies, um, it, and you know, so it's it's almost mm. Um and and in a sense, that's why people say, you know, you it always comes back to you as an internet user to take a critical thinking mm-hmm. stance, right, right, N- don't believe everything you you read or see, mm. um, and. That's easy to say, though. I mean, we were—I was talking to my colleague from China the other day, and they say that there's this. Um, the people who are most susceptible to fake news in China are the, the older generation. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the retirees, people who sit at home and um, have a lot of time on their hands, and they go online and they believe what they read because they grew up in an age when you. Believe what you read in the newspaper mm. or now, you know, it's online publications. Mm-hmm. And that's the generation most difficult to instill this sense of personal responsibility to vet what they consume. Mm. Um, you know, we, our generation, we talk about subscribing to multiple news sources, um, always making sure that you see both sides of the argument. Um, you know, if you're a liberal, subscribe to Fox as well. Um, just making sure that you have a balanced view of the world. Um, the older generation in China, they may not have that attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's they weren't brought up to to know that they need to do that. And so, my colleague from China would say, "Oh yeah, there's this big problem now with uh, grandmothers." Um, reading a piece of news about a certain food that they shouldn't eat and they just stop eating and I think, you know, there's people stopped eating eggs for a while Mm. because, you know, there's some some toxins in egg and um, fake rice, you know, Mm -hmm. there's apparently there's fake rice in China, so they don't eat rice from certain sources because it's fake rice. Mm. Um, Crabs, right? There's a a hairy crab season in China. and Oh, yeah, there's news about how Hairy crab from the sources is, is filled with, uh, you know, carcinogenic toxins and so on. So like there's all this stuff going on, this kind of swirling around, and I kind of feel for them because sometimes you almost don't know what to believe anymore. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, in in the West, you see the result as well of just it's. I don't think it's an accident that there's a clear divide in age between people that stand on both sides of an issue. I think Brexit Mm -hmm. versus Remain is a great example. And then of course in in the U.S. you've got other examples as well. So to me that that means that uh, yes, the older generation, they don't have that attitude of maintaining a balanced stance, um, taking responsibility for thinking critically but it's gratifying to see that the younger generation does mm. because they grew up in this age and they know that, all right, they have to be vigilant and in a sense, almost to protect themselves mm. in this, what is effectively an information war.
0: Yeah. Right? But I guess that the, the problem uh, is that it weakens trust in everyone, right? Even if you are 100% honest and reliable and doing everything the way it should be done, um, the fact that because there's so much fake news out there, that, that can weaken trust in your own brand through no fault of your own, mm. right? So mm. it's almost, it almost creates this environment, I feel, where everyone is less trusted, mm. Um, mm. which must be a challenge, I would think, for, for your clients and indeed for the, for the counsel you provide them.
1: Yes, it is, and I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Mm. Um, uh, yes, we do see across the board an erosion of trust in brands Mm-hmm. in in governments, mm. in the establishment, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a solution. I think um, it, this is a this is a problem that we all struggle with.
0: Yeah, frankly. and what about the influ?
1: Well, I was going to say the influence of influences,
0: but what about mm. the impact they have? Because <coughs> they are considered to be more trusted now, because I don't, for whatever reason they're seen mm. as being um, more authentic, mm. Uh, mm. even though. In many cases, they, they strike me as being less authentic. Uh, but brands are putting a lot of trust and a lot of money in them. I mean, how do you see that equation?
1: I think the jury is still out mm. as to how effective are our influencers. Um, obviously, we all know that in China, but it's, China is a huge market for influencers or what mm. they call KOLs there. KOLs, yep. Um, and, and also, I think in this area, there are... A few companies that are producing solutions that help you choose the right KOLs to right. To, to use in campaigns. So
0: benchmarking them. Benchmarking and, yeah.
1: them. Um, you know, we there are solutions out there, for example, that give you a probability score mm-hmm. of how likely a particular KOL is to be embroiled in a scandal mm. over the next six months. Um, I'm not exactly sure how they do it. <laughs> I'd love to see that algorithm, Yeah. Um, but I know that that's something that's that's being actively developed. Um, wow. And if I'm being honest, you, you know, we're one of them. <laughs> we're okay. looking into it. There's a bit of R&D going on All about right. that. Interesting. Um, we do actually have a product, if I may pluck this a little bit, where we will um, connect a KOL And the uh, purchase intent and the purchasing power of the followers on e-commerce platforms to predict how effective a KOL will be in helping you convert consumers. Yeah, and that's a product that we've already launched. Okay, Uh, and so because that answers a question that a lot of brands and marketers are asking, which is you know, if I pay $5 million to a KOL, mm. how does that translate into real-world sales conversions? How, you know, how, what is my ROI? Mm. And I think, so that's our attempt, that's Rudifin's attempt to, to answer that question. And mm. I'm sure that there'll be other solutions to come to kind of address different, you know, questions about how effective our KOLs. Now, the great thing about KOLs in China, especially at the tier one level, is it's very transparent. Um, you know how much, you know, a, a tier one KOL would cost to use in a campaign. Mm. So at least in terms of how much you spend on a KOL, that's very transparent. It's in the end result, right? The business result. That's mm. where there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, a lack of clarity or ambiguity. Mm. But I think you know a lot of different companies are, are working on solutions to mm. solve that.
0: Okay. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you about, if I may. Um, is a story that about China that seems to have captured the attention of the of the Western uh, media, and particularly the uh, you know the Western marketing media, um, that you know social media behavior is, is starting to be used to determine uh, a person's mm. credit score or mm-hmm. even their kind social of Social credit. yeah their social credit. I mean, how do you see that as a as a, I suppose a an indicator of, of, of behavior and indeed something that both governments and companies are, might, might look to in the future? I,
1: I think it's, it's a double-edged sword. Um, mm. I think it is a system that is ripe for abuse mm. <laughs> um, and um, in the wrong hands it, it could become uh, an instrument for, you know, not just for, for managing behaviour but perhaps for oppression as well. Um, right. I think it's early days. It's it's hard to tell. And and I would, I wouldn't want to, just jump to conclusions and mm. assign malicious intent to yeah. you know any system to, to control. I think as humans, our our very nature is to rebel against any system of control. Mm. Um, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I, I do believe that sometimes we we need to have control. Mm-hmm. We need to have ways of. Um, not necessarily um, managing, but at the very least be able to identify where a problem is and influence behavior to to solve that problem. Um, I, you know, I think fake news is a great example. Uh, it is because of this lack of any kind of control that we're in the situation that we are in today where... Elections are being influenced and you know world events are being influenced by fake news on social media Mm. Um, If five years ago ten years ago People say maybe we have a problem here. Maybe we need to put some control mechanisms in place um, The world might be very different today, so I I don't instinctively judge um, You know if I look at the social credit system for example I don't necessarily think it's completely bad. Mm. I think it's how it is being used mm. that is the open question.
0: But how does it work exactly? Is it just a case of, of people, you know, of, of your social media presence being scored according to certain criteria?
1: You know, that's very murky. So I was just talking to my colleagues from China mm. and I said, you know, you guys know about this, right? And so. First of all, there's 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 not a lot of very solid, clear news about how the system actually works. Exactly. Yeah. So my you know my, my colleagues from Beijing they say oh uh, yeah I mean if your social credit's low you may not be able to purchase plane tickets right um, or okay. train tickets you know so your your. Ability to freely travel within the country is curtailed, right? Um, and that's about all that they know. So yes. my sense is that there's not a lot of public information about the system itself, right? Um, which is not a good thing because it means that it's it's subject to a lot of interpretation by new sources in the West, sure. right? Um, because when there's a vacuum you know, nature abhors a vacuum, people are going to come in and make assumptions, right? Sure. Same thing with um, Alibaba and Jack Ma, mm. um, how it was revealed that he's a communist party member. Um, and it, it's in a sense, it's it's laughable because inside China, mm-hmm. it is extremely common for someone to be a party member. It's not considered... A big deal whereas you know outside of China people might who don't know that will say well what if he's caught between a, part, a party directive versus you know shareholders interest and so on that's that's never an issue so mm. I think just more awareness and more transparency is always better
0: yeah I think just with the social credit idea it's if, if people don't know what's being measured that's probably not ideal mm. Um, mm. perhaps although maybe uh, you know i i would really w- worry if people w- were um rating my own social media presence according to various criteria i'm not sure it sounds very dystopian doesn't it? <laughs> it it's it's it is scary it is scary yeah but then you also think you know credit scores in a way and and you know the way insurance companies look at your life as a whole is is also a little bit dystopian to begin with so this is kind of i guess taking that one step further Exactly. Perhaps.
1: So there was a piece of news yesterday about how um, uh, one of the newspapers in Hong Kong mm. uh, they were able to log into one of the credit rating agencies yeah, I the that TransUnion yeah. mm. and uh, found the credit uh, rating of uh, some government officials here. You know yeah. that that that's kind of stuff happens every day.
0: Well, that's another issue, isn't it? Cybersecurity. Mm. I think you have a
1: product for that too. We do. <laughs> Good. Um, I'd be worried if you didn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know what's also very interesting is um, with the recent um, Cathay Pacific mm. you know, de- data, data, breach. data breach incident. Yeah. We're getting a lot of clients come to us and say, "Can you can you do a detailed analysis of the Cathay case? Right. And tell us, you know, what what they did wrong, what they should have done." Um, and, and so that has actually generated generated a lot of interest and a lot of conversation. Yeah. and not just among our consumer brand clients but especially among the financial industry. Sure. you know banks and insurers and so on. So that's something that people take very seriously. So Cathy's not a
0: client, are they? of no, yours. No. No. So what did they do do wrong? If you don't mind sharing <laughs> a, a little bit, maybe not all of it. Mm, um,
1: <laughs> well you'd have to come to our our uh, <laughs> workshop for me to tell you that but um I think it's still early days. I mean, we we what we did was, you know, we kind of looked at the chronology of of the incident, and how right. it unfolded from March to May to yeah, October. That, that was one of the big issues, right? Uh, they didn't tell anyone for a few yeah. months. So breaking down the steps of what they should have done in, you know, during March, what they should have done during May, what they, you know, so it, it's interesting just to obviously hindsight is 2020. So it's it's I I don't purport to say that if we were in their shoes way back in March or May, that we wouldn't make the same mistakes. But mm. you know, for the benefit of our clients, we are taking hindsight lens to this and saying, this is where they should have, they made this choice versus this other choice and so on. Um, it, it, for an outsider, it's always, it, you know the solution's always very clear, but I'm sure that internally, it's a very complex issue. Mm. Um, it's also a company that uh, perhaps a, perhaps has suffered a little bit in terms of their reputation already in recent yeah years. So yeah. I think they were perhaps being extra cautious. So mm. many different considerations. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll recover in time, but it, it, it's just, it's it's been very damaging for them.
0: Sure. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure and we'll, we'll hopefully have you back on in the not too distant future. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with The Echo Chamber next week. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. sponsored by The Bullet Group. Putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.